Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Joe Hubbard's Bible study entitled Love Never Fails. Joe is an ordained minister with the Churches of Christ in Australia and has experience in the community development and not-for-profit sector. This is the third session of Joe's Bible study entitled Love Beyond Fear. So my plan was, because I thought, well, it's, you know, it's the last day, we're all a bit weary. Um, perhaps we'll start with a children's story, um, but then we ended up with a musical children's story, which is even better. But that is my favourite ever children's book, if you haven't read it. Next to the Bible. It isn't, you're right. Um, greatest book. Well, it actually is. Like when I, well, it actually is the first thing I bought. I've got an 11-month-old. And in fact, I think the only thing I've bought for him so far, because he's the first grandchild, so everything's been bought for him. Um, the only thing I think I've bought is this, because uh, I um, was so terrified of becoming a mother. I, I couldn't cope with this during pregnancy, even buying anything. But this, I thought, well, regardless, I need this. This is amazing. So if you haven't read Over the Place You Go, as you just heard a bit of a rendition of it, um, one of the greatest books ever written. It actually was the last book that Dr. Seuss wrote before he died, and it summed up his philosophy of life um, for children and for adults and for everyone. And so over the last two days, we've had a chat about the barriers we as Christians face to obeying Jesus' commandment for wholehearted love. We've um, got, looked at loving beyond meeting need. We've looked at loving beyond boundaries. And I, today I want to have a look at uh, loving beyond fear. And specifically, I want to have a look at loving beyond the fear of failure. And that's why I chose this children's book as a start. And if, if, you, if you missed some of the lines in it, um, it really, this book places the, uh, the highs of success alongside the lows of failure really, really well. Um, and it encourages perseverance no matter what life throws at you. So that's why I want to read it over my son so many times because I think that perseverance is one of great, life's great lessons. It says, great, you, places great success. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest alongside fantastic failure, except when you don't because sometimes you won't. And it encourages us to persevere, though our arms may get sore and our sneakers may leak. And while it doesn't mention God specifically, if you read it alongside things like Hebrews 12.1, I can see some beautiful parallels. So let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin so that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So reading this beautiful children's story and reading the Gospels side by side both inspire me, inspire me a belief that great success in life and great success in wholehearted love come from taking great risks and are sustained by great perseverance. The wholehearted love that we witness in the Gospels, while beautiful and life-sustaining, is also a highly risky endeavour. Love is a highly risky endeavour. And so this risky Gospel love, what does this look like for us? What does perseverance look like for us? 
My husband, James, who isn't, who's currently trying to see if our son will do one last sleep before we get him on a plane, uh, but was in the, around the back the last two days. Uh, we've spoken about the fact that both of our jobs are to encourage really risky creativity and really big risk taking in face of big challenges and some pretty confronting statistics. Within my world of community development, both locally and internationally, did you know that new community development projects statistically fail 80% of the time? True story, 80% of really innovative social enterprises and collective actions flop. I mean, it does depend a little bit on how you define failure and flopping, Either way you look at that, that's not a really great strike rate. However, over with James in the business world, things are looking even bleaker. According to Forbes, a whopping 92% of new business startups fail in their first three years. 92% of new businesses fail. So if that's what living creatively and looking, taking risks look like, why even bother? I have a sign above my desk at work that reads, Every day we are given wonderful opportunities, cleverly disguised as insolvable problems. So right up front, I want to ask the question, what insolvable problems are you and your community facing today? One of my favourite TED Talks, you know the TED Talks you can watch on um, YouTube or what have you. One of my favourite TED Talks is by a guy called Mishkin Ingawali. And this guy, uh, he, Mishkin saw a need to create some technology to test for anemia. The tests that were available before Mishkin um, discovered his test were invasive and they were slow and people were dying unnecessarily. And he determined that he wanted to create the bloodless blood test. Because in order to test for anemia you needed to take blood and people with anemia needed blood. So he determined he was going to create the bloodless blood test. And in his TED talk he says, I saw this need and so do you know what I did? I made it. And the whole TED crowd just burst into applause. And when the applause finally dies away, Mishkin quietly says, and it didn't work. And so I made it 32 more times, and then it did work. And that really hit home for me. It's true for me, and it's true for pretty much every other speaker I've spoken to, every other pastor or leader or community worker I know. For every successful story you hear in ministry or in business, there'll be eight or perhaps 32 others that didn't meet the mark. But we still, really, despite that truth, we're really scared of failure. As I said on day one and as I said on yesterday, by the time we trot off to primary school, we've already learned that the world is fearfully unpredictable. And so we've learned self-protective behaviours to survive in this scary and unpredictable world. And we learn that to love in a fearful, unpredictable place is to make ourselves vulnerable to hurt. And so we learn not to show weakness and we learn to fear failure. And if as a church, if as a church we, we experience failure, how does that reflect on us? How does that reflect on our prayer lives? How does that reflect on our devotional lives? Worst of all, how does that reflect on God if we fail? How do we, as Christians, when we fail, how do we deal with that in the context of our faith? How do we theologise that? What do we do with those 32 other attempts that just don't work? How do we deal with that? How are we okay with that? 
And then how do we keep momentum going in spite of those eight or 32 other failed attempts? How do we tell the stories of those failures? Because the truth of the matter is we have, I have, we have, we will continue to fail. And I want to flip the cultural narrative on that today. I want to say today that it's not only okay, but it's actually very, very good for us to fail. It's how we learn the perseverance that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. It's how we learn how to take more risks. And so I think we've got to learn how to take risks. We've got to learn how to persevere. We've got to learn how to fail. All of these things are learnt things. They're not something that is inerrant and gained by us by doing nothing. They're learnt through failure. We are scared of risk because we are scared of failure because our culture doesn't like to think about failure. But just as Mishkin Ingawala, great successes of our culture have all been built on perseverance in the face of failure. So I want to list for you today, and you've probably heard most of these, but I think it's really important. Uh, it's really, really good when we hear these back to back because I think it helps to cement the point. So I want to list some of the failures that I'm talking about. So J.K. Rawlings, probably the most successful author of our time, was rejected by 12 publishing houses. And when she was finally accepted, she was told a year later by her publishers that she should probably find another job since there was little chance she'd make any money from Harry Potter. Disney was turned down for jobs as newspaper artists and was turned down 302 times for funding for Disneyland. Einstein didn't speak until he was four years old, he didn't read until he was seven, and he was labelled by teachers as slow and mentally handicapped. Van Gogh sold one painting in his whole lifetime, and that one was to a friend who felt sorry for him. Colonel Sanders was rejected for fried chicken by 1,009 times before a, a restaurant finally accepted it. And I may argue that maybe they should have rejected it too. <laughs> Steve Jobs was fired from Apple, the company that he created. Edison was told by his teachers that he was too stupid to learn anything. He was fired from his two first two jobs for not being productive enough. And he made 1,000 failed attempts before inventing the light bulb. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team Henry Ford tried to start the Ford company three times and had to dissolve it. And Dr. Zeus was rejected by 27 publishers before he was finally accepted. But what about those of us of faith? Surely as long as we align ourselves with the plans of God and the power of God, if we align ourselves enough and we pray hard enough, and yet I can't name a single character in scripture who did not experience failure and most quite momentously culminating, of course, in our Saviour, who allowed himself to submit to the greatest failure, the cross, and to appear to have been utterly defeated. In fact, Christ himself used the analogy of the seed that must utterly die and be completely destroyed, turned inside out and be overcome in order to bring life to the plant. We must risk utter failure if we want to truly succeed in love. Jesus is the living and dying example that sometimes wholehearted love requires risk of wholehearted failure. But we only risk failure if we're creating something new, if we are creating something untested. If we stuck to only doing what we knew, then we would be safer. But if you're not prepared to be wrong, then you would never come up with anything new. Or as Robert Kennedy put it, only those who dare to fail greatly will ever achieve greatly. So today I'd like to talk about what we can do when we're staring failure in the face, when it seems like you have nothing to work with, no helpers, no money, no support, 
when the fight or flight wells up in your body? How can I cut my losses? How can I make it look like this was my plan all along? Or just deep frustration that those of those, towards those who have let you down, who promised to get on board but who just didn't show up. A few years ago now, when I was directing a church-based agency, um, the team and I made a decision that some of our programs needed to come more in line with our theology and philosophy. And our philosophy was that we wanted to walk alongside people who were doing it tough rather than provide services to the poor. So that's more about what I was talking about yesterday. We didn't want to provide services that made ourselves feel good, but at the end of the day didn't see us, us doing life together as friends, just us helping them. So one of the programs that needed a bit of evaluation in this area was our community meal program. Now once again, those of you who are here on day one will remember me talking about the challenge of running a soup kitchen and its power imbalances that we face in that. So one of the primary targets of the meal was that it was not to be a group of haves who were serving a group of people who have not like a soup kitchen. So if you came along to the meal and you helped out, then we're really grateful, but we want you to be a part of the meal as well. We want you to sit alongside and eat that meal with everyone else in conversation, because it's not about them and us, this is about all of us together. Now we had a great team of mostly young adults at this time who were coming along and cooking and participating in this. And some of them, very well-meaning souls who were choosing not to eat their meal with the rest of the community on the floor. And they were sneaking into the kitchen and having the meal by themselves and talking among themselves. And this group, unfortunately, was growing. And it's not surprising because this kind of volunteering is a lot easier. And it's more attractive because while you're dishing out the meal to people who are less fortunate than you and you feel good, you still get to hang out with people who are just like you. So my community development worker and I decided that this needed to be very gently addressed. We needed just to re-clarify the purpose of the meal to these volunteers and let them know that it wasn't actually okay for them to eat their meal in the kitchen. Now because this had been the purpose of the meal all along, this had always been our plan, we didn't actually expect much of a reaction to this. This was just re-establishing what had always been the norms of the meal. But the reaction we did get, we lost most of our young adult volunteers like that. They just stopped showing up. So suddenly we had a whole bunch of people, between 60 and 100 people, turning up for a meal and no one to cook it for them. Well, very few people to cook it for them. And the temptation for me was to just go, well, that's a failure. Let's stop the program. It's not working. My own sense of deficit. I missed the big, glorious opportunity staring me right in the face. And I decided that this project was a failure. And I'm all about cutting losses. I'm all about cutting programs once they've outlived their usefulness. I've seen way too many church programs that have just been flogged well beyond their natural life just because they make the people involved feel good or because that's how we've always done things. And, and because if we close a program, any program, no matter how long and successful or short or di and dismal, no matter how non-existent the current outcomes are, if we close a program, then we've failed. And we don't want to fail. And I tell you what, if you want to fail at something in the church, don't let it be food. Our churches are pretty stuck on food, aren't we? The answer always seems to be food. You want to get people along? Put on a meal. You want to discuss something? Put on something to eat. You want to get the community engaged? Put on food. One of my board members at this community service agency, and I'm not joking, used to ask me to see the catering line in any one of my budgets. She said, if you've got the catering line sorted, everything else will fall into place. And don't get me wrong, there's something very risky 
about ministries of food in the age of gluten-free, fructose-free, lactose-intolerant, halal, decaf, vegans. And I think I can say that as a vegetarian. But there's also something very scriptural about ministries that are centred around food, right? The tale of how Jesus fed the thousands with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish is told exactly six times in the Gospels. And last time I counted, there was only four Gospels. So that means in two of the Gospels, it's told twice. So it might be a little bit important. So I'm going to read you the second of Matthew's two accounts of this event. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so they may go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men and those other unimportant people, women and children. That was a joke. Here's my next joke, so you're ready to laugh. I have an 11-month-old son, and I don't think this is a miracle anymore because I'm pretty sure if I give him one loaf, he can turn that into 12 baskets of leftovers. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Last time I told that joke, it was just dead silent. So anyway, we have thousands of people sitting around listening to Jesus when his disciples realise it's getting late and they're at risk of a hangry crowd. Here they were, faced with all these people who they frankly wish would just go away. And they do the right Sunday school thing and they take their problem to Jesus. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? And this is the reason I've chosen this account out of the six. Because in this account, uh, Matthew records that the disciples say, we have nothing. What do you have? Jesus asks. We have nothing. Nothing but a few loaves and a couple of fish. And they say this as though it's a bad thing. It's doubly good in Matthew because this is the second account of this miracle within a couple of chapters. So as the reader or the hearer, we can see where this is going. We've seen this before. In fact, the way Matthew's telling it, the disciples have seen this before. And yet they still say, we have nothing. The disciples' mistake was also my mistake. They forgot that they have a God who created the universe out of nothing who can put flesh on dry bones, nothing. They can put life in the dusty womb of nothing. I mean, let's face it, nothing is God's favourite material to work with. Perhaps God looks at what we dismiss as nothing, as insignificant, as worthless, and says, now that, that is something I can work with. Give me your tired, your weak, your poor, your broken, your nothing. And I will show you the assets that you were dismissing as nothing. So that's what we had. We had a bunch of tired, poor, very poor, weak people showing up for a meal with no one to cook it for them. Can you see the blatantly obvious that was staring me in the face while I was too busy being pissed off at the volunteers who were too selfish to spend half an hour eating their meal with their community? Jesus asked his disciples, what have we got to feed these people with? And the disciples say, nothing. We've got nothing, Jesus. All we've got is a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. Well, you don't have nothing then, do you? 
I'm sitting here thinking, Jesus, we've got nothing. All we've got is 60 people coming along for a feed and no one to feed them. Well, then you don't have nothing, do you? So from among those who were rocking up to the meal, we recruited five cooks, three guys to head up, set up the tables and two guys to sweep up afterwards. And they loved it. They owned it. Do you think I had trouble getting those guys to sit down at the table and eat their meal with their friends? In the face of the hungry, hungry crowd, the disciple says, we have nothing but five loaves and two fish. And I want you to think of a problem now that stirs your compassion, but appears too huge for you to do anything about. And I want you to see if you can complete that statement. I have nothing here but. What Jesus does with what we give him is so mysterious, so powerful, so hard to describe in words. We blunder about with our own ideas. We offer uncomprehendingly what little we have. Our little loaves, our little fishes, and Jesus takes them. He takes our ideas, our money, our humour, our time, our energy, our love, our gifts, our words, whatever we offer them. He lifts them up in prayer, he lifts them up in blessing and he breaks them. Because this comes with a cost, it comes with necessary failure. And then he gives them back to us to give to those who need them. So my question for today that we're going to discuss at the end is, what nothing have you got? And sometimes the question is not what, but who. Who have we dismissed? I had dismissed the people who are attending the meal as nothing. As a problem to be sold or solved or fed in this case. Not as an asset in and of themselves, despite the challenges in their lives. Who have you got who thinks they are nothing? Who is treated like nothing? And what might they be able to offer? When we look at people with a mindset to their assets, their strengths, what they can offer, rather than what they need from us, what their deficits are, what problems they are bringing to us to be solved. When we look at people to their strengths, a whole other world opens up. But it's risky. Letting people with chaotic lives run a meal was risky and messy and required great perseverance constant re-evaluating and a lot of creativity and a lot of acceptance that this wasn't going to look the same way as it did before. But there is something entirely blessed and divine in the work of actually allowing those who are most broken in the community to participate in the redeeming of that community. I worked with one pastor who was developing a circle for Aboriginal pastors and caregivers, pet pastors, Aboriginal parents and caregivers. And they'd come together for a lunch and they bring with them, the whole point of this lunch, was they bring with them a lot of challenges they were having in their lives in their community. And it would have been very easy for this pastor to say, okay, tell me what your problems are and I'll go look and find a solution for you. But instead, he paid for lunch. And whoever came while they sat around and worked, they sat around and workshopped the challenge, challenges they were having and facing and came up with their own creative solutions or shared their own experiences of facing similar challenges. And when I talked to this pastor, I said, that sounds really great. And I said, what, where did that come from for you? And he said something very powerful to me. He said, I think we often, Joanna, I think we often insult people simply by asking too little of them. And it's so true. And it's a wonderful mirror of the divine activity of God. A God who didn't need our participation in the redemption of the world, but who invites it. 
demonstrated by Jesus, who didn't need the participation of the disciples in feeding the thousands, he could have done that on his own, but he invited the participation of his disciples. What it takes to be humble in community ministry, I believe, is to learn to walk slowly with our communities, not for them. If you've ever created something, like a cake or a construction with a child, then I think that's a great example of what I'm talking about here. Of course it would be quicker for you to bake that cake yourself and it would look a lot better if you did it yourself. But that would defeat the purpose of the exercise. So it is with community ministry. It's far simpler for a church to construct a program of their own design and fruition. But that's not the purpose of community ministry. We can create programs and solutions for the community or we can create them with the community. And by doing it with, we invite our communities into the work of the Holy Spirit, into the work of making things right, of redeeming what is good. And ultimately, we invite them into the work of salvation. We've got two options, really. We can keep going about providing solutions and programs and development opportunities and having some success. But there is something reflective of the divine, something reflective of this story that I've told today, something holy and Christ-like, when we allow the community to participate in this redeeming, just as Jesus allowed his first disciples to participate in his miraculous works. Jesus, who after he had taken, blessed and broken the loaves, gave them to the disciples to give to the crowds. So Jesus deliberately involved his disciples in the action. The feeding of the thousands was about far more than just material provision. It was far more than just feeding the hungry. This was more than a meal of physical sustenance. It was a, then, as today, eating was a symbol of unity. The crowds were being welcomed into a new community here. And so it has a lot to teach us about welcoming our community into unity with us. We have the amazing opportunity to partner with God in reclaiming the beauty of our communities. But God's way of reclaiming that beauty is always inclusive, risk-taking, creative and participatory. And therefore our ways should always be risk-taking and inclusive and creative and participatory. But participation and creativity are messy. Risk-taking and inclusivity are hard and complicated. They involve a lot of stumbling and fumbling and failing. When Jesus fed the thousands, he took the bread from the disciples, he blessed it and he broke it. We need to fail. Nobody learned much from constant success. And so I want to encourage you to go out there, to take risks, to be okay with having nothing to offer God, to be okay with offering God your little loaves, your little fishes, your little ideas, your little money, to be okay to give those to Jesus for his blessing for his holy breaking, for good and nourishing failure. And then to be okay to receive them back. Because just like those disciples, you are a partner with God in redistributing those gifts to those who most need them. I want to finish with a quote from Theodore Roosevelt. It's known as his man in the arena quote. And any of those who've read Brene Brown will also know that she uses this one a lot too. So Theodore Roosevelt said... It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. 
No, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. His face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. He strives valiantly. He errs. He comes short again and again. And at worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. And so his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who in their safety know neither victory nor defeat. So, congratulations. Today is our day. We're off to great places. We're off and away. Let's get out into the arena and I hope that as you go back into your communities, you know some great victories and some very, very good defeats. But above all of that, I hope you dare very greatly. So the question for today, what nothing have you got? I'd love for you to chat in some small groups for I don't know what time I've, I think I've done a bit shorter today on purpose. Yep, so you've got 10 minutes again. <coughs> have a chat in your, in little groups. Yeah, that question. What nothing have you got? Alright, I'll just call everyone back and just see if there's anything amazing or questions that came out of that. And then we'll try it. Alright, so is there anything profound, any profound nothings that came out of that? Or effective dances? <laughs> <laughs> or, um, mm -hmm. I, I've said before, um, I, I heard this love say, I find um, like, like a lot of nothings you got. Um, Sorry? I'll, I'll find a lot of uh, what nothings have I, have yes, have I yep. got. And then, and then afterwards, um, in our discussion, Pinpointing, like I said, a couple, but then really there, there's a lot. I wasn't a lot there. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them was, was uh, money. Yeah. And, and then um, just, just, just um, being where we are, um, we're pretty fortunate. Mm. Um, and and like, this, uh, the, the stats people, people were um, chucking out. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. No problem. I said, um, like food Yeah. Love it. I was thinking about it 
ministry and stuff I'm doing at home, there wasn't really much that stood out, but um, in my own life with my family, and like, we've had a lot of issues um, with like, money and my mom doesn't work, my dad's retired, he's been living away for like, like six years. And the stuff that's going on at the moment, like we have, might have to move houses, and, like, everything's kind of, I guess, falling apart in that sense. But for myself, um, if you know me, like you, you wouldn't even know that anything was happening in my life if you just were hanging out with me, just like unless you got to know me like really well. Because even though all these things are going on, like God has still given me like a peace, like as He says in the Bible, like the peace of like goes beyond our understanding. And, like such a literal sense, that's what He's given to me is that even though people say like that I should be, you know, pretty wrecked by this stuff, but. I'm still just happy to be alive and like just be living for God and doing the stuff that I'm doing. Like, I think it's awesome still. Like I still consider life to be going pretty well. I've still got like my family very close to me. And especially my seeing in my mum as well, who's always been a massive stress head. Mm-hmm. Like God's just really like changed her heart heaps and she's really coping so well than she would have been two years ago. So it's that peace that God gives us. Yeah, we can literally say we've really got nothing at the moment, but we have God and like it's a all right, well thank you for those who've come to all three these um, studies and for those who popped in and visited as well. It's been um, a real pleasure to be here and I'll just pray for us as we go out now and um, go back into our communities this afternoon. Father God, please give us Spirits of perseverance, we pray. Jesus, we thank you that you risked wholehearted failure for the sake of wholehearted love. The spirit of courage and not of timidity grows strong in us. Amen. This was one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.